We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Now, in Matthew chapter number 17, uh, I, I want to bring you a message on the transfiguration of our Lord as a type of the rapture, when we're raptured out of the earth to see the Lord and to be with the Lord in that glorified state. Now, I think most of you are familiar with the story of the transfiguration as recorded in Matthew 17. In verse number 28 of the last chapter, chapter 16, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, There shall be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, in the glory of his kingdom. Now, you recognize that all the disciples did die. Uh, None of them saw the rapture. None of them saw the millennium. None of them saw the kingdom as we one day will experience. They also, by the way, will enjoy that kingdom along with me and you. Now, in verse 28 of the preceding chapter, Jesus gives a direct prophecy of what he's about to do as recorded in chapter number 17. And some of those indeed saw the Lord glorified soon after he made the prediction of verse number 28. Now, the glorified Savior, of course, is described in Matthew 17 in the Mount of Transfiguration Experience. And I want us to examine that for a moment in the uh, service today. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his, his brother, bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, his raiment as white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said, Jesus, unto Jesus said, Lord, it is good for us that we be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man till the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. That's the first nine verses in Matthew chapter number 17. Now, one at a time, let's examine these uh, unusual verses in this particular chapter. In verse number one, after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, uh, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. Now, in verse number one, I see a picture of the time of the rapture. A time, the time of the rapture. After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother. Now, six in the Bible is a very important number. Six in Bible numerology is the number of man. It was on the sixth day of creation that the human man, Adam, was made and placed in the Garden of Eden. Six days shalt thou labor, and on the seventh day shall be a day of rest. And uh, the number of the man of sin, Satan's incarnate, 
will be 6663. The uh, satanic trinity is what it amounts to. Six, the number of man. Over and over again, we find that number uh, in the scriptures. Always, without exception, in relation to man. 6,000 years of history of the human family. Now, every once in a while I hear on the radio or reading the newspapers or the magazines uh, the statement that man has been upon the earth thousands upon thousands, yea, millions and possibly billions of years. Now, that sounds wise and sounds uh, very scientific when you read it uh, in the magazines or when you hear it announced over the radio that the age of the human family is millions of years. Life magazine several years ago put out a special issue. And in that special issue, they attempted to trace the human family back to its origin. Billions, I've forgotten how many billions it was, maybe 15 or 20 billions of years ago. And they gave a picture of what man probably looked like a million years ago, and then another picture about what he might have looked like five million years ago, and then a picture of what he might have looked like a billion years ago, and on and on. A whole edition of Life magazine gave it o- given over to that uh, kind of uh, scientific theory. It's not a fact, but only a theory that man has been upon the earth all these millions of years the scientists talk about. There's always been one thing that I have never been able to straighten out in my thinking about that kind of uh, conclusion. Now, maybe I'm not as intellectual as some people are, as some people may think themselves to be at least, Maybe I'm not, but I just can't figure out why if man has been upon the earth for millions of years, to say nothing of billions or even uh, thousands, if you please, if man has been upon the earth all these long millenniums, why can the historian only probe 6,000 years back? Now, I can't figure that out. It seems to me that if man has been here for millions of years, then the archaeologists and the scientists and the historians would have found some concrete, tangible evidence of a human race upon the earth dating back millions of years ago. And yet there isn't a historian that's ever lived, modern historian or ancient historian, who has been able to trace the human family further back than 6,000 years from where we are now. Now, you can go to the library and get all the history books you may. And I suspect there are hundreds of volumes of history books in the library downtown. And we have a library here in our church, no doubt, with scores of history books, all kind of history books written by all kind of people. And in not a single one of them is there any concrete evidence of a human family more than 6,000 years ago. When you go back 3,500 years B.C., you find yourself in the ancient Egyptian empire, way back before the days of Moses. Uh, You'll find the ancient Egyptian empire before the days of Abraham. Abraham lived uh, 2,500 years before Christ. And you'll find the Egyptian empire back in those ancient days. Those pyramids, no doubt, were probably built about 3,000 or 3,500 years before the Lord. But when you get that far back in history, that's as far as you can go. There is no evidence that there was any other nation or tribe of people anywhere on the Mediterranean except in Egypt at that time. There is no Roman Empire. There is no Grecian Empire 3,500 years before Christ. 
There is no uh, England. There is no France. There is no Russia nor Germany 3,500 years before Christ. The only nation that historians have ever been able to discover just that many years back, and that's relatively nothing compared with millions, is the ancient Egyptian empire. No, the fact remains that the human family has been upon the earth about 6,000 years. There's your number six again, man's day, 6,000 years. Now, God's day, the day of rest, the Sabbath day will be a millennium of a thousand years, but that's number seven. And seven in Bible numerology is the number of completion and perfection and divinity. And the millennial reign will be the seventh millennium, the seventh thousand year period, when Jesus sits upon the throne of his father David. But the age of man upon the earth, 6,000 years in number. Now, could that be the reason that uh, Jesus, after six days, taketh Peter, James, and John? Why didn't he say after ten days? Or why didn't he say after five days? Or four days? Why do you find the number six in verse 1, Matthew 17? And after six days, a day in God's mind is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as a day. Now, I don't think the fact that the number six appears in verse number one is an accident. I don't think any scripture is by accident. All scripture is given by inspiration. I may not understand or fathom all the mystery of it, but every particle of scripture has a divine purpose and meaning behind it. And I'm coming today to conclude that the number six speaks of man 6,000 years upon this earth. Now you say, well, Brother Harold, prove that. Well, I couldn't prove that except to wait. Now just wait a while. And if I'm right, it won't be long until we'll know. It won't be long, that's for sure. If this is the right and logical interpretation of the number six in verse one, and if all that I said about the six number of man and the 6,000 years of man's history is so, then it won't be long until we'll all know it. Won't be long because the 6,000 years is rapidly coming to an end. It won't be long until we're going to turn the calendar to millennium number seven. And millennium number seven, in my thinking, is going to be the rest millennium when Jesus sits upon the throne of his father David and rules the earth with a rod of iron for a thousand golden years. Now, if that logic is right, then the time of the rapture is set forth by the number six that Jesus used in that verse. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, up to a high mountain and depart into that high mountain from the multitudes. So I place the time of the rapture at the end of the sixth millennium, the 6,000 years. We're rapidly coming to the ringing down of the curtain upon the age of grace, and the age of man, and the time of the church upon the earth. Now, I'm not a calamity howler, and I'm not going to set a date. I'd be a foolish preacher if I said to you that 1974 or 1984 is the time. I don't know that. Nobody knows the day nor the hour. But I'm simply reminding you of the significance of the number six. And I'm trying to stir you to think for yourself in relation to that six-day period 
mentioned in verse 1. The time of the rapture after the sixth millennium. The sixth day of man's history upon the earth. Now one thing I have established, I think, if you're reasonable and logical, and you high school and college students get me at this point, one thing I have established. All this talk about the human family being millions of years old, put no stock in it. There's no scientific proof of that kind of a theory that I know of in the least. The only way that I can find out what man was a hundred years ago is to read the history. Or a thousand years ago is to read the history. Or 3,000 years ago is to read history. And if I keep on reading history, I run out 6,000 years back. And I don't find any other history books prior to 6,000 years. This is the greatest history book the world's ever known. And this book runs out 6,000 years ago. Amen, brother. And I don't think man will ever write a book greater than this one. And the history of the human family in this book only goes back 6,000 years. Take it for what it's worth. Then I note in verse 1 also, not only the time of the rapture, but the people of the rapture. I see in verse 1, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother. Now to me, these are symbolic of those that are saved and ready to go when the six-day period is over. Peter, James, and John are a type and symbol of the blood-washed bride, the born-again family, the church redeemed by the work of Christ upon Calvary. Now note, it doesn't say that Jesus took King Herod or Agrippa or Festus, as noble as they might have been. It doesn't say that he took the chief priest and the high priest and the religionist of his day that high mountain apart but he took rather Peter James and John these are the inner three of the disciples that nobody would question their integrity you might have some doubt about Judas Iscariot you may have some doubt about Thomas who doubted later and said I cannot believe you may have some misgivings about Matthew who was a tax collector and no doubt stole money from people you may have some misgivings about the other disciples, but nobody has any misgivings about Peter, James, and John. They are a type of the born-again body of Christ. Now, I believe the others were born again too, with the exception of Judas. But Jesus selected this inner three that all of us would agree are born-again, blood-washed disciples of our Lord. And he taketh these up and apart into a high mountain. The people of the rapture will be the born again, the saved in God's grace. Now one day, I don't know when the Lord's coming in the rapture. The rapture is the first phase of the second coming of our Lord when he comes as a thief in the night and with the trump of God, with the shout and the voice of the archangel, the resurrection takes place and the living dead are translated and transmigrated in the twinkling of an eye. I don't know when that's going to happen. Nobody knows when that's going to happen. But one day, we sang a while ago, some golden daybreak in our Sunday school assembly. Then we sang as a congregation a moment ago, Jesus is coming. And now your pastor's preaching about that spectacular moment when Jesus comes with a shout and the voice of the archangel. Name it for us, preacher. 
Nail it down. Tell me when this will happen. I can't do that. Nobody in the world can tell you the day nor the hour. But let's imagine that the rapture is about to take place right now. That within the next 15 minutes, the shout will be heard and the rapture will take place. Now, if that were to happen within the next 15 minutes, you say, preacher, you, are you? no, I'm not saying it would, but I would not guarantee that it won't. If it were to take place in the next 15 minutes, all the Peter and James and Johns in this congregation would disappear. We'd leave. And no doubt there'd be some, not many, there are few people in the building, no doubt, that's unsaved. And you'd be left up on these pews by yourself. Uh, the pastor's gone, but the Aiken is gone. The musicians are gone. The deacons are gone. The born again are snatched out in the twinkling of an eye. And those that aren't born again will be left on these pews and you'd begin to look at each other. And then it would dawn upon you that the rapture has taken place and you didn't go. You're lost and you're left behind for the tribulation of the Antichrist. Now, the people that will go in the rapture are the born-again believers. Nobody else. No church member except he's born again. No Baptist except he's born again. No Pentecostal except they're born again. Are no Catholic except you be born again. Are nobody else except you're born again. God's not coming for the Baptist. And he's not coming for the Catholics or the Pentecostals or the Methodist. He's coming for the born again, blood-washed bride of Christ. And they are symbolized in my story with Peter, James, and John. Then taketh Jesus these three. He left the others behind. And the day is going to come when God's literally going to do that. Take out those that are blood washed and leave the others behind. Won't that be a dreadful day? Can you imagine a godly mother taken away, leaving behind an unsaved husband and unbelieving children? Can you imagine a mother having a baby snatched out of her arms? A child beneath the age of accountability, I believe, will go in the rapture. And that baby will be snatched out of mother's arms. And mother left holding the garments of that babe, and the baby is gone in the rapture. Can you imagine how that mother's going to feel? Can you imagine how dad will feel when he comes home to dinner or comes home for supper at night? And his wife is gone, his children are gone, and he's a bear goozler and a drunkard and a cusser, and he's left behind, and his family is raptured out. Well, I, I'm not imagining things. What I suggest one day will literally become a reality. The people of the rapture are those like Peter, James, and John who are born again. Then taketh Peter, James, and John Jesus took. Not everybody, only those that were born again were taken. Then I see also in verse number one, the fashion of the rapture. I read in verse one, he bringeth them up into an high mountain, apart, up and apart. Now when Jesus comes in the rapture, that's exactly what's going to take place. We're going up and apart from this world. In the twinkling of an eye, we shall rise to meet the Lord in the air. Now somebody will say, well, Brother Harold, I just can't fathom that. I don't, I don't see that. I can't accept that. 
You mean to tell me that the day will be when you're going to leave this world? Why, you're too big for that. <laughs> that my weight won't have any effect on the rapture. Now, you believe that. And you thin ones won't go a quick, bit quicker than I'm going. Not a bit. But you know, the astronauts have really put on a demonstration for me and you as to what the rapture is going to be like. Those fellows climb out of their spaceships and walk around out there in space with the greatest of ease. Now, man can do that. Don't you think my heavenly father can nullify the law of gravity long enough for me to meet Jesus in the clouds? I think he can. Old Dr. Lincoln said, I'll be walking along and I'll notice my foot doesn't touch the ground and the next one doesn't touch the ground and I begin to climb to meet the Lord in the air. That's the way it's going to be. We're going to be taken up and apart in the twinkling of an eye. We're not going out or down. We're going up and apart. When Jesus comes in the rapture. And that's going to be. But preach I'm afraid. I, I'm afraid to ride an airplane. Don't you worry about that. You're going to walk in space. And not be afraid. You'll get over that. You won't be 15 feet in the air. You'll be over it. You'll be hauling glory. Before you get 15 feet up. You won't be worried about. Uh, your feet not touching the ground. And you won't have any kind of flying sickness either. Lord take care of that. Everything's going to be all right. Preach up. You're besides yourself. No, I'm a believer. And the time will come when the dead in Christ shall rise and we shall be changed and caught up to meet Jesus in clouds. That's what the Bible teaches. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. I will not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord shall descend with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet Jesus in clouds. And so shall we ever be. Thank you, Brother Joseph. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, that's what it's going to be like. In the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be caught up and apart to meet Jesus in clouds. Now, I know that's fantastic. And I know that's out of the world. It sure is out of the world. That's right. And I know that the natural man finds it difficult to comprehend. To tell you the truth, I don't understand how those astronauts can walk around in space. But I don't doubt it. I've seen pictures of it. And I don't doubt at all what those fellows climbed out of the cabin of those spaceships and began to walk around out there on nothing. Long way to the earth, but they walked around out there on nothing and didn't have any trouble, no calamity. Isn't that something? That's something. Well, the day will come when a great cloud of the Peters and James and Johns are going to be caught up to meet Jesus in clouds just like that someday. The people of the rapture and the fashion of the rapture up and apart, up and apart, we're going to rise one day. We'll say goodbye to this world. Amen. Say, preacher, aren't you satisfied? Yes, but I'm going to be more satisfied when King Jesus sits on his throne. Don't you like the world, preacher? Yes, I like it, but I like it a lot better when the curse of sin's lifted from it. 
Well, preacher, don't you get along? I get along very well, but I'm going to get along better when the knowledge of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. Amen, Amen brother. It's going to happen. And the fashion of the rapture is up and apart when the Lord Jesus comes. We'll drop the robe of flesh and rise to seize the everlasting prize. Now, don't you, don't you try to fathom that or understand that. Don't try to scientifically uh, analyze what I've just said. No need for you to go down to the chemist's the laboratory and ask the boys down there to uh, uh, put it down on paper for you and to write down analyses of what I'm talking about. They can't do that. The greatest miracle the world has ever seen is when the grave gives up the dead and the living are translated together with them to rise to meet Jesus in clouds. That's the greatest thing the world has ever seen. And it's going to see that. It's going to shake this earth from center to circumference. And people are going to be uh, wide-mouthed and aghast at the miracle of the rapture when the dead come out and the living are caught up to meet Jesus in clouds. Won't that be something, brethren? Jesus took them up and apart. Then I want you to see the glory of the rapture in verse number 2. We're told in verse 2, And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his clothing as white as light. Now that's the same Jesus that Peter, James, and John had fished with and eaten with and preached with all down through these months now. This is the same Jesus. But I mark you that Peter, James, and John had never seen the Lord like they now see him. They'd never seen him that way. Nobody else had ever seen the Lord like this until this moment. Did you get that? When, when, when uh, Matthew's sold out his tax collector's job and followed Jesus. Uh, Jesus was not glorified then before Matthew. When Peter drug his fish's nets to the coast and washed them and mended them and then gave them away, he'd never seen the Lord glorified. None of the other disciples had ever seen the Lord glorified. They'd only seen the Lord in his human body up until that point. But these three were permitted in God's great economy to see the Lord glorified. And when Peter, James, and John was taken up and apart, then Jesus was transfigured. He was changed. That's what the word transfigured means. He was changed. He was changed mysteriously. He was changed miraculously. And I can't, I can't tell you how it happened, but I read that it happened. There's many other things in the Bible I wouldn't be able to explain, but I accept them. I don't explain the virgin birth, but I believe it. I can't explain the bodily resurrection of my Lord, but I believe it. I can't explain the verbal inspiration of the scriptures, but I believe it. And we're told in verse 2 that he was transfigured. Now that means that he was glorified. He was made different. There was a change. He was the same Jesus. But now they see him, not in his physical form, but in his glory, in his heavenly form. They caught a glimpse of the Savior as he was before he was born of the Virgin Mary. And we're told in verse 2 that his face shined like the sun, and that his clothing were as white as light. 
Now you don't look at the sun but for a second and you must close your eyes, I mean S-U-N, and turn your face away. If you'd open your eyes and look steadfastly to that blazing sun on a bright day, you'd not look for just a minute or two until you'd become blinded. Men just don't look at the sun for any length of time. You can't. It would blind your eyes. It would destroy your eyes, and you know that. Now that sun's there in all of its might and glory. Now my text tells me that his face, Jesus' face, shine like the sun. That means if Peter, James, and John looked very long into the face of Jesus, they'd get the same effect that I'd get if I looked at that sun out there in the daytime. You don't look at the sun long, but Jesus' face shined like the sun in the Mount of Transfiguration. And his clothing was as white as light. The light of the sun. His clothing might have been dark clothing, like some of you have on now. But when he's transfigured, his clothing shine bright as the light. And can you imagine the glory of the Savior in that breathless moment? Jesus glorified before those disciples. It's no small wonder that they fell to their faces and were afraid. It's no small wonder they said, let's build three tabernacles and stay in this great mount of transfiguration. It's no small wonder that when they heard the voice of God, they were afraid of that voice that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now see the glory of the rapture in verse 2. His face shine, his clothing like the light. Now listen, let me apply that. I've never seen the Lord in a human body. I've never put my hand in the nail prints of his hand. I've never thrust my hand into his side. I've never heard him speak as one having authority and not as the scribes. The disciples saw that. They sat down with him and ate fish. I've never had that joy. When I shall see Jesus first, I shall see him in his glory. Now they saw him in his humility first and then saw him in his glory. But first when I see the Lord, I shall see him in his glory. Now the only way in the world that I can see the Lord in glory is to have a glorified body. To be lifted out of the grave or to be translated, you see. Suppose that in my natural bodies I now have that all of a sudden, I was to walk into the presence of the glory of God. Not warned, with no preparation. I just walk into the presence of the glory of God in this natural body. Well, if that were to happen, the glory of God would destroy this natural body I tabernacle in. Just like the light would destroy my eyes, the glory of God would destroy my body. I couldn't survive in that. So when I come out of the grave, God's going to give me a glorified body. Oh, when I'm translated and caught up in the twinkle of an eye, I'm to get a glorified body. And then I can look full into his wonderful face and behold the glory and the majesty of a glorified Jesus in the rapture. The glory of the rapture. Then he was transfigured. His face shined like the sun. His clothing was as white as light. That's the glory. We have never imagined anything that will compare with what we're going to see in the rapture. The glory of a glorified Jesus will be mine. Let me call this to you as an illustration. In Revelation chapter number 4, John said in verse 1, I heard as it were a voice from heaven which said, Come up hither. Now there's your rapture. 
And in the next verse, John said, and immediately I was in the spirit and I was caught up and there was a door open in heaven and I saw the throne of God, said, said John, and he that sat upon that throne. And then John commenced to describe he that sat upon that throne. He said he was like a jasper stone and a sardine stone, had a rainbow around his head like the emerald stone. And he began to describe the glory of the throne of God when he was raptured out in Revelation chapter number 4. He saw the glory of God. Now the day shall be when I shall see and experience the glory of God. I have never seen that, but I shall one day in the mighty rapture. The glory of the rapture. Then also note also the, the company of the rapture. Look at verse 3. And behold, there appeared with Jesus... Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, do you accept that as literal? Preacher, do you really believe that, uh, that Peter, James, and John saw Moses and Elijah? Well, that's what the Bible says. Now, I riding home last night from my meeting. I listened to Herbert W. Armstrong, and he was making fun of immortality. He was scoffing at the idea that man has an immortal soul. He believes that when a man dies, it's like an animal, like a dog, like a beast, that man has no immortal soul. How silly, how foolish can some supposedly preachers be? And he believes in that. He, he laughed at it. He scoffed at it. He mocked at the immortality of the soul last night. When I, I, I thought to myself, how would he explain verse number three? Moses and Elijah. Why, Elijah never died. He went to heaven in a chariot of fire. You believe that? That's what the Bible says. Uh, I guess he would explain that away. But I'm not going to explain it away. I just believe that Elijah went to heaven in a chariot of fire like the Bible says in 2 Kings chapter number 2. I accept that. I believe it. And Moses died. The Bible tells me that he died and God was his mortician and buried him. Nobody knows where Moses is buried. But the Bible is clear that Moses died and was buried by Almighty God. Now, if man's not immortal, then how in the world do you get Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration? If Moses is dead and in the grave, buried on top of Mount Nebo, buried by God himself, then how are you going to get Moses at the Mount of Transfiguration? If he's dead like Armstrong believes... That when a man dies, you put his body in the grave. That's the last of him until the resurrection. He believes in what some people call soul sleep. Something akin to that. I don't believe in soul sleep. I'm honest. I believe the Bible teaches that the moment you close your eyes in death, that moment you open your eyes in glory. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Seems the Bible's clear at that point. And I don't accept this idea of soul sleep. And I think man's more than an animal. And when man dies, his soul lives on. I believe in the immortality of the soul. Amen. Whether you're saved or unsaved, you've got an immortal soul. If you're saved, you're going to live everlastingly with God. If you're not saved, you're going to burn everlastingly in hell. Every man has an immortal soul. Amen. Now, that's logical to me because here's Moses and Elijah. And Elijah had gone to heaven a long time ago, 700 years. 
before the Mount of Transfiguration. And Moses had lived several thousand years prior to that. In fact, 1,500 years prior to that. And now here's Moses on top of the mountain talking with Jesus. Now that's some company, believe me. Now that reminds me that when I get raptured, I'm going to have some company with me that I've never met before in my life. I'm going to have the privilege of shaking hand with Elijah and shaking hand with Moses. I'm going to have the privilege of meeting Father Abraham. I'm going to have the privilege of meeting Jacob and Joseph. I'm going to have the privilege of walking with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm going to have the joy of saying howdy to Daniel. I'm going to have the joy of meeting uh, James and John and the others. What a company we're going to have when we rise to meet the Lord in clouds. And that company is foreshadowed in the Mount of Transfiguration in verse number three. Then appeared Moses and Elijah. You talk about reunion. And what one of us do not anticipate reunion? If I would ask you to lift your hands, everybody in this church has somebody in the cemetery that you'd love to see again. I know that. I have somebody in the cemetery I'd love to see again. Now, brethren, you may take my money. You may take my life. You may tamper with anything I possess. But don't take my faith that one day I'm going to see them again. Don't tamper with that. Don't trifle with that. You encourage me to believe that. I sincerely believe that my loved ones I shall see again someday. And the moment of that reunion will be the rapture. If they're saved, they're coming out of their grave. I'm coming out of mine. If they're alive and remain, together we'll be caught up together to meet Jesus in clouds. And you talk about reunion. We're going to have reunion then. Yeah. You dear mothers that have buried children, and I feel for you because my wife and I have, we'll have reunion. God bless you. I see the tears in the eyes of some that I've buried children for. What a reunion we're going to have. What a day that's going to be. I'm, I'd be glad to see Moses and Elijah, but I'd rather see Mama. I want to see Moses and Elijah, but I want to see my child. I'll shake hands with Moses a little bit later. I want to see her first. I want to see Jesus first of all. But I have some others I want to see before I get to Moses and Elijah. I've got some church members of Tabernacle I'd sure like to strike hands with again. And I'm going to see these church members that I buried. We buried 25 of our members last year. And some of those dear ones were precious people that I'm going to strike hands with again around an open grave one of these days in the rapture. Preacher, you're crazy. No, I'm not crazy. Not at all. I believe the scriptures. And to me, this is a blessed hope that I'm talking about the company of the rapture. Then I want you to note also the ecstasy of the rapture in verse number four. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us that we be here. That's the ecstasy of that moment. Peter said, I never have been so blessed as I am right now. I've had a lot of good things happen to me, Lord, but this is the best thing that ever has happened to me. It's good for me that I be here. In fact, it's so good, he said, 
I don't want to ever go off this mountain. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. The ecstasy of the rapture. Now, there's one thing for sure. You might not become expressive in your emotion in this world. But when you get glorified and raptured out of this earth and see Jesus and shake hands with mom and daddy and son and daughter and husband and wife, you're going to say like Peter, Lord, it's good that we be here. And you're going to get so excited and so carried away until you say, Lord, I don't ever leave this moment. Let's build three tabernacles. I want it to be just this way forever. I never want to see it change. That's going to be a wonderful experience for us when we're raptured out of this earth. Lord, it's good for us that we'll be here. You, you might go out to the Eastern Airlines today and find a lot of cancelizations. Somebody called and said, I want a ticket to so-and-so. And they write the ticket out. And when time for flight comes, you may not show up. You decided you didn't want to go. But there won't be any cancelizations on this trip, brother. And more than that, when you start the journey, you don't want to ever stop. You don't want to stay right with it all the time. Lord, it's good that we be here. That's the ecstasy of the rapture. And you've never had anything in all your life that's going to bless you more than to participate in the rapture when you rise to meet Jesus in clouds. Now, I've had some mountaintop experiences in my life. And I've been blessed of the Lord in my soul many times and lifted up in the Lord in the spirit many times. And I give God glory for every blessing I've ever had. But I confess to you, I don't think I've ever touched this. No wonder Peter said it's good for us to be here. That's the ecstasy of it. Can't find a better place. Amen. To walk with Moses and Elijah and to sit down with mom and daddy and to get reunited with husband and wife. And to put your arms around your child. Brother, nothing better in the world than that. Lord, let's build three tabernacles and stay here a long time. What well, I'd like to remind you, you will. That's right. He's going to build a tabernacle in Jerusalem and stay with us a thousand wonderful years. We're going to be with him a long time. And all those that we've been reunited with are going to be with us and with the Lord for a thousand wonderful years right here on this earth. You long to hear the voice of your loved one again, you shall. You long to sit down with your loved one again, you shall. You long to see the face of that one you love, you shall see it. You're going to see it in the rapture. When Jesus comes, it's going to be so great with ecstasy until you'll cry, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Then last, I want you to see the center of the rapture in verse 5. And verse 8, and while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved son. Moses is great. Elijah is great. But Jesus didn't even mention them. He's not showing disrespect. The very fact that the Holy Ghost put their names in verse number 3 is all the respect that Moses and Elijah needs. God doesn't mention Moses and Elijah. But he said to Peter, James, and John, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. That's the center of the rapture. Then in verse 8, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man. Moses and Elijah, they saw no more. They saw Jesus only. He's the center of the rapture. 
when the rapture takes place, I have a lot of folk I want to see. Many hands I'd love to shake, but there's one face I want to see above them all. And there's one hand that I'd love to shake above them all. And there's one feet, a foot that I love to bow at above them all. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, fairest among 10,000. And in the rapture, I'm going to see him and shake hands with the Savior and bow down at his feet and bless his holy name. Now that's the rapture. After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John. Folk, I don't know when the Lord's coming, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if our six days is just not just about up. Just about up. And it's not going to be long until after six days will be a reality for me and you. Then taketh Peter, James, and John up and apart. And when our six days is up, Jesus will take us up and apart in the mighty rapture. We will bow our heads and pray. Every head bowed, every eye bowed. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.